Fantastic stuff. Well, you know, the text line is kind of quiet this morning. Mm. Let me see what we've got here. Let me just head over there. And we've got a couple of interesting texts. Let me just see this one here. I think this one came through yesterday. Um, it says, Lyle, you mentioned how the Sunni Muslims follow Muhammad's teachings more closely than uh, Shia Muslims, which makes them better. Well, I didn't say better or worse. Mm. I just said this is how it is with Islam. You mm. have uh, Sunni Muslims who follow more closely with the Quran, mm. and you have Shia Muslims who uh, have continued inspiration and inspired tradition. That's how we would describe it in Christianity. Mm. That's, that's the language that we would use in uh, in Western society today. Um, and continued, you know, the, the prophet being passed on from one person to the next. Okay. Uh, was Muhammad a good guy? Was Muhammad a good guy? Did he not murder people who didn't agree with him? Didn't he marry a 12-year-old girl? And how do Sunni women fare as they are treated with respect and kindness as equal status as men? I'm going to research this subject. You have got me thinking. Okay, so there's more to the story than, you know, just simplifying it that much. Mm. Islam is just like Christianity in that there are literally a multitude of different denominations within Islam. Mm. There is a multitude of different interpretations of the Quran. Uh, there is your two major branches, one you know which accepts the Quran and one accepts tradition as well. And so this has created a tremendous amount of variety. As to whether Muhammad was a good guy or not, I don't know. I wasn't there. Mm. There are a, There is a lot of tradition that says that he was. There is a lot of tradition that says that he wasn't. I wasn't there. I can't pass that judgment. Mm. Uh, when I look at the Quran, people say that, oh, well, you know, there's 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 violence in the Quran, so therefore we shouldn't have uh, anything to do with the Quran. Well, have you read the, read have the Bible? Have you read the Bible, yeah. dude? <laughs> there's actually less violence in the Quran than there is in the Bible. Yeah, well. That's, mm. and, you know, by a very wide margin. Uh, did he marry a 12-year-old girl? I don't know. Once again, I wasn't there. Mm. There is definitely strong tradition that he did. And... Uh, Okay, we could say, and 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 rightfully so, that's a terrible thing to do. Mm. But was it abnormal in those days? No, this was a traumatized society. This was a society when that when you know people married at ten and dead at forty. Mm. It was a short, hard life in those days. Uh, it might be a bit of an exaggeration for that particular region because I don't have the research on Arabia in front of me from you know the sixth, seventh century. Um, AD right now, but they lived short, hard lives and people did get married much younger than what they get married today. My wife's grandmother mm. was married when she was 14. <laughs> you know, society has woken up to the fact that these things are bad ideas in recent years and we kind of take it for granted that... It's always been this way. It hasn't always been this way. Mm. In so many societies, when you go back through history, once a girl reached puberty, she was of marriageable age. Thank God we've recognised that that is pedophilia and we have outlawed it. That's right. Mm. Um, and thank thank God that we have recognised the level of damage that that can do to young girls. Mm. Um, but yeah, that doesn't that makes no excuse for it, but... Would it be that hard to believe? Probably not.
Anyway, um, so the the answer to, to my answer to that was I wasn't there. I don't know. Mm. Um, I have read the Quran, and there are things in the Quran that I struggle to answer. Not a lot, but there are. But there's things in the Bible like that as well. And so a Muslim would say, well, you've got violence in the Bible, we've got violence in the Quran, but we've got a lot less. Mm. A Muslim would say, well, you've got passages with the Quran that you really struggle with, but you've got some in the Bible that you really struggle with, we've just got a lot less. Mm. So it's an interesting discussion to have. Um, we do need to get to know our Islamic friends um, a lot better. Okay, we've got another one here from uh, Freco who says, atheist... Uh, something or other, I've got not sure what that word is, uh, witchcraft is growing faster than ever before. When a kid, when kid witches were in books, now they, uh, when, when a kid witches were in books, now they live on your street. And that's, that's, that's very true, I think. Mm. When I was a kid, probably not for you, Lawson, but when I was a kid, witchcraft was very, very, was unheard of. Mm. Uh, by the time I became, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, there was a lot of witchcraft being practiced in the area where I lived in Tasmania. Mm. I know some people who are kind of like into that stuff. Yeah. But then it's like from a, not from a completely spiritual perspective in terms of, like these people might be like atheists. That's right. And a lot of people kind of miss that is that a lot of witches and people into witchcraft are actually atheists. Yeah, and they just like the aesthetic. Like, that's that's the main thing. They're just kind of going along with the aesthetic rather than... Like, there are definitely people who are into, you know, the supernatural witchcraft stuff and believe it, but a lot of them are atheists and, and not spiritual at all. I wouldn't say not spiritual at all, but the ones that I know that are atheist witches mm. are people who definitely believe in the force of nature. mm You know, if you look at the sun, the sun exerts a lot of force, a lot of influence on our planet. Therefore, the sun is very, very powerful, and they recognize the force of nature. And to a certain extent, they they personify the force of nature in the spirituality that they practice because they, you know, they believe in looking after, you know, nature and the world and the planet and the Mother Earth Goddess and all of Mm. this kind of thing. But they don't think that the Mother Earth Goddess is a conscious being. They think that the Mother Earth Goddess is, is the global ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And so that's that's the kind of definitely spiritual, I would say, but atheist. Yeah, that's right. Which is very, very similar, if not almost identical, to uh, a very large proportion of ancient witchcraft and ancient mystery religions at their mm. higher levels. Mm. Yeah, particularly, you know, you look at astrology and all that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. They're like... Your peasants, they believed, yes, these were gods in the sky, but the priests, no. Yeah. They were more educated than that, and they were like, no, this is just a personification of nature. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, interesting to uh, see where we are in our world today. Now, I thought I had another text message here somewhere. Let me just see if I can find this one that came through. Um, And this was in relationship to what we were studying in the Bible yesterday about the story of Elijah. And we're going to pick up with the story of Elijah today. And uh, this person states, it's interesting how we forget why Elijah went into into depression, which was his realization that he was not much different from his fathers Mm. who let the Lord down. Had he not run away due to fear, he missed a great opportunity for a great revival and reformation in Israel. And that's kind of where we pick up the story today. So let's head over to 
Uh, where are we? First Kings. Was it First Kings chapter nineteen? 18, nineteen. Yeah. First Kings chapter nineteen, and let's just read for ourselves verse four and see what it says right there. Uh, in First Kings nineteen and verse four, the Bible says, "Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord," he said. "Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died." You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. So to cut a long story short, Elijah has had a great victory followed by mm. giving up. Yeah. You know, he's got God who has supernaturally, you know, vaporized an entire altar and its sacrifice. Mm. Then he has, you know, destroyed the uh, the, the, the priests of Baal, eight or nine hundred of them. Mm. And then he has prayed for rain, and it has rained for the first time in three and a half years. And he has led Elijah down off the, sorry, Ahab down off the mountain. And the entire nation of Israel has pronounced their allegiance to God. Mm. So he's the most successful evangelist in the Bible to date, probably. Mm. And the next day, he gives up. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, that night. He yeah. runs for his life. And this is really interesting because you can kind of see when, you know, as as that text message coming through right there, if you put yourself in Elijah's position, you know, he runs for his life and he runs until, until he is too tired to run any longer. And having reached that particular point, he then realizes that he's just brought about the conversion of the entire nation and now he's blown it. Mm. And all of that good work is just yeah, done, out the window, gone. That would be incredibly discouraging. Yeah. That would be discouraging on an altogether different level to think about, you know, why you have, you know, why, why, why did you do this? Why did you blow it so badly? Mm. So we've got a lot of different things that we can think about in looking at Elijah's depression here this morning. But one of the things that I mentioned yesterday that we didn't get time to look at was Elijah's possible PTSD. Mm. So there's two things that are coming into play here. One is one of them is the size of the victory that he gained and the amount of effort that was expended into producing that victory. Mm. And then there is PTSD. And then there is the fact that he blew it epically. So let's begin with the concept of the size of the... So he's invested a lot of time and a lot of effort into his his great victory. Three and a half years. And those three and a half years have been hard. Yeah, that's right. Unimaginably hard. But he has a great victory, and imagine the spiritual experience it would be when he's stopping on when he's standing on top of Mount Carmel and God is pouring fire down from heaven. Mm. I mean, if you were there, Lawson, dude, you just freak out like it's intense, incredibly intense. And sometimes we have Mount Carmel experiences in our lives. Yeah, definitely. So let me ask you a question, Lawson, and uh, I'm going to ask this question because it is common to a lot of people. Um, Quite a number of years ago now, you went to Arise. Yeah, that's right. And you invested a lot of time and a lot of effort Mm. over, what, three and a half months? Yeah. And at the end of that three and a half months, did you come out on a spiritual high? Oh, yeah, it was awesome. 
Yes. Yeah, I was like, I was stoked, you know, ready. You're ready to just go out and take on the world. Yeah, serve God. Like, what was the next two or three weeks like? Oh, well, we did nothing the next two or three weeks. Yes. And it was just like pretty like, <laughs> no, it was good. Like the next two or three weeks were, I would say you're still riding the high. Okay. But, but, you know, ultimately I think, I think the way to really kind of look at my experience is the idea of like, I invested that time in Arise, but then even further, you know, cause then I took on roles as Bible worker and teaching people the Bible. Um, and during that time, you know, based on the effort that I'd put in through Arise and then after that going and doing the work, um, there were definitely times I was hugely discouraged by, you know, plans not working out, ministries not working out, people who you had gone and studied with for 12, 13 weeks, ultimately deciding that, you know, they didn't want to become Christian, like things like that. That's massively discouraging. Um, and even, you know, it, it can even hurt. Like, I, I feel like another thing playing into Elijah's situation is, is the hurt of his pride and reputation. I know that that's something, yeah, when I've made mistakes and when I've failed, like I've just had that deep sense of, you know, as he says, like, I'm no better than my father's. Like for me, I'm like, man, I am just the worst. Like everyone's going to think terribly of me. Like, you know, and you have those moments all along the way as yes. you, as you're doing ministry. Um, you know, they're inevitable, like that you'll face disappointments, like God will bless. And and what I'm experiencing right now in my ministry as we, you know, working at the Newcastle Uni is God is consistently blessing us, which has been really good. But at the on the flip side, there are also disappointments, like ministries that should be running at the moment that aren't because of COVID lockdowns, you know, people that we've lost because of, um, you know, they've had to go back to their home countries or whatever it may be because of the lockdowns, like... Yeah, you know, it, it the tough things happen, but ultimately, um, yeah, yeah, they they can they can really they can weigh on you, like in spite of the blessings. Yes, mm. absolutely. And it's one of those things that I often find in ministry, and I've seen it happen over and over and over again. When a person has a Mount Carmel experience and they stand on top of the mountain, it's often within a short space of time that they have an Elijah experience. You know, kind of the next day. Yeah, maybe that's not, right. Maybe, yeah. maybe not the next day, but within a short period of time where they come crashing down and it's something that I think we all need to be aware of. You know, yeah. you have a you have a baptism, for instance. Mm. And a baptism is a very high experience. Everybody's rejoicing. Everybody is so stoked. And uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I I baptize somebody as a pastor and at the same time I cringe on the inside because I know what they're going to get smashed with in the next mm. month. The devil just smashes people after a big spiritual high. He just mm. drags them down and wants to completely destroy them. And that's that's how Satan works. That's what Satan does. Mm. And it's what he loves he just loves to do. And so uh it's it's something we need to be aware of. Okay, so that was the first thing I was going to look at. The second thing I was going to look at as a contributing factor to his depression was PTSD. Why do you think that uh, he might have PTSD? I, dude, he has just been running on empty for so long. Like, and the and the events that he's been facing too, like, like they've they've got away on you. Uh, particularly, like, you know, experiencing the famine, right? Yes. And it's like your your even Elijah was, you know, they're eating nothing. You know, it's just dry and hot all the time. Like constant pressure on just surviving um follow that up by like you know has the Mount Carmel experience and they've got to go kill all those prophets like okay and how would that have been done 
like they literally what does it say they took them down to the river and slaughtered them and how would they have slaughtered them with the sword yes like so basically you take a knife and you butcher somebody to death mm. and then you do it again and again and again and again and again mm. that's going to be hard on the psyche yeah that's right incredibly hard on the psyche soldiers don't have to do that these days mm you know, soldiers kill from afar. Soldiers kill from the other side of the world. Soldiers these days sit in an office with a joystick. Yeah, that's right. And a button. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting because when you look at PTSD and you look at, you know, the First World War, because the First World War was an interesting war in that it was kind of that crossover period between um, hand-to-hand combat and distance combat. Mm. Because in the First World War, they still had bayonet charges. Yeah. But they also had guns. mm and they also had machine guns, and it was kind of the end. The machine gun brought a complete end to hand-to-hand combat. Mm. So, yes, bayonets were carried in the Second World War, but the number of times that they were actually used, like, you know, there was actually a, an order given to fix bayonets and charge, uh, you could probably count on the fingers of one hand in six yeah. years of conflict. They were, they were like a last-ditch Last-ditch if you're being overrun. Yeah. That's right. They were not an assault weapon. Yeah, not something that you carried on an assault, and so when you um, when when you, when you look at that, and when you go back to the First World War, and you've got this situation where soldiers have the option of shooting versus stabbing, they would always shoot. And when they did a bayonet charge, what they found was that the soldiers would typically, once they reached the enemy trenches, would turn their rifles around and start clubbing the enemy because there is something in the human nature that it finds stabbing somebody and and pushing somebody into somebody else's body absolutely abhorrent. Yeah. And it's something that we recoil from. Mm. And we don't really understand the PTSD of ancient battles and ancient executions like this where this was the only way that you actually had to kill and that was by literally hacking somebody to pieces. Yeah, well. And this is what Elijah has done. He's, He's gone and he's killed the... You know, eight nine hundred prophets. But obviously, he didn't do all of that by himself in one day. Mm. Uh, this would have been the nation of Israel, who's like, okay, these guys are charlatans, and they've led us up the garden path, and they're the actual reason that we've had three and a half years of drought and have been starving, and so they have turned on them. It's not hard to see what's going on there, mm. but you can certainly see that uh, they would have, you know, that this would have been a terrible, terrible situation to be in, that would have its effect on a person's psyche. Definitely. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so we've got a text message coming through in relationship to the discussion we had earlier, how that in earlier times people would marry at much younger ages than what they do today Mm. and what we would consider to be illegal today. Although I think in, what is it, North Carolina or South Carolina, one of those Carolinas, it's still uh, legal to marry at the age of 14. Uh, They're looking at changing that legislation Really? Imminently, yes. In the United States? In the United States. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, the, the text message says this. These days, girls, boys, and those days, girls, boys, are no way in comparison. Those days, girls were more matured, and these days, even in late 20s and 30s, they behave like kids. Now... There's a lot of validity to this from one perspective and not from another. Yeah. And I'll say, and the reason I'll say it is this they had a lot more life experience. Mm. So, for instance, 
I left home when I was 15. Mm. You left home when you were... 15. 15, same yeah. age. And uh, we both lived overseas, although I lived, you know, out in the bush for a number of years before I went overseas. Mm. Now, what I found was that I, when I went to, the, went to college when I was 20, so mm. five years after I left, I've been living for, uh, away from home for five years. One of the things I found frustrating was that there was a bunch of, you know, girls that were sort of my age or a couple of years younger, you know, potential spouses maybe. Um, when you're 20 years old, that's kind of how your brain works. Yeah, that's right. That this was their first experience away from home. Mm. Had no life experience whatsoever at all. And it was just a, such a complete and total turnoff mm. because we just weren't on the same, we didn't think yeah. the same. We weren't yeah. on the same wavelength in yeah, any yeah. way, shape or form, um, you know, which is why when I met Shell and she'd lived away from home and, you know, done some things like that, it was. Bada bing, bada boom, and we're here today. <laughs> 27 years later. <laughs> so life experience does count. Mm. And there's no question that in times past, children had a lot more life experience in a lot shorter space of time. But I will say this, that does not stop them from being children. Yes, it doesn't change their physiological makeup. Neither does it change the fact that they are children. Yeah. They are just children with life experience. Yeah, that's right. Now, that life experience makes a difference. It doesn't make it right. Then it goes on. It says, uh, how many girls speak like Mother Mary who was 14, uh, I guess, who said, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. Okay, so well, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Mary was 14. Mm. Just a slight correction there or just an observation. Um, with respect, uh, the Bible does not give the age of Mary and uh, the Bible indicates that she was young mm. and that... In one passage, it indicates she was young. In another passage, it indicates that she was an adult. Mm. Uh, so that's all the information we have. So we can't sort of we can't go assigning an age to Mary or using Mary as an argument in this kind of uh, situation because we don't know her age. Mm. But then the person writing the text here goes on. Um, this is um, with a with a really good observation. Um, as a matter of fact, various saints at a tender age, spoke great words of surrender and sacrifice, and I will add encouragement and preach the word of God with great power. That's right. Absolutely. From, you know, single-digit ages. Mm. And so we we definitely have that. Mm. Um, she goes on to observe. Yeah, sorry. Dude, yeah, Samuel became a prophet at eight years old. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And, and we've got that even in modern times uh, where you've got young people who just stand up and preach the word, with, word of God with great yeah. power. Mm. So that's ah, absolutely, I really appreciate it. That's a great observation right there. Uh, then she, she observes, my mother was married at the age of 16. My granny must have married way younger. Shell's, Shell's grand, grandmother at 14. Um, they were married ladies, in my opinion. They cared for their families and very responsible women. Sometimes uh, too much information is dangerous. That's the reason God said the kingdom of God belongs to little children. I'm referring to yeah, the previous com- conversation on this, on this matter. Yes, I, I understand that. Mm. There is a reason why we do not we we no longer allow it, and it's not because uh, we because culture has changed as much as we have recognised that it's actually a terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, regardless of how much life experience you know, and if you're going to give a child enough life experience so that they can do all of those things when they are still children, then you are robbing them of their childhood, and we've, right. we've recognised that that's bad for. You know, we we can improve on that, mm. and uh, and so you know that's why we've outlawed it, and praise God that we have. Mm. 
and may that never change. I know there are a lot of push, a lot of people pushing in the world right now to change that because, like, well, you know, pedophilia is just a another uh, nice. orientation. No, no that not. is not the case. It is a perversion and a mental illness and a crime and a crime. Yep, and a crime, and it's illegal, mm. and that's a good thing. Mm. Um, so I think there's some really good points here. There's um, some other things there that. I understand the history of the past, mm. and I'm glad we don't lo- no longer live there. Yeah, that's right. Mm. I think that's probably the the uh, what we need to the attitude we need to take there. Okay, mm. back to our story of Elijah. Interesting discussions we've had coming through on the uh, text yeah, line this morning. Right. We love you guys um, just chipping in with your ideas and observations. It's fantastic stuff. So thank you so much. Uh, we talked about his guilt. Uh, we Elijah's guilt. Mm. In that you know he has blown it. We talked about you know the the low that often comes after a high, and we've talked about the PTSD. Mm. You know, there's just been a lot of people that have been killed in a very brutal way, and so you can kind of see where all of these things combine together to bring about Elijah's tremendous depression. Mm. And so he runs from all of it. He runs into the wilderness and God does not desert him. Mm. God is still there. And he runs until he is so exhausted he can run no longer. Mm. And he crashes. He wakes up. There's an angel sitting there waiting for him to wake up with some food. Yeah. He eats some food, sleeps some more, eats some more food, heads out into the wilderness. Mm. And so, you know, this is something that I think that we can all learn from because we all suffer depression at some particular point. Not all of us suffer from clinical depression, but even for those who are, in, you know, when you look at Elijah's depression here, which lasts for a significant amount of time, you know, he's in the wilderness for like 40 days or something or other. Mm. It's a very significant amount of time. You find that, you know, this was, this was severe depression that he falls into, but God never leaves him. Mm. God never departs from him. God never stops calling out to him. God is always there. And God is always there to uh, to keep calling out to him and, and to keep bringing him back. And uh, you know that's what we need to remember today. If you are somebody who is suffering from depression, God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is always there. Call out to him today and surrender to him today. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Question of the day. All right, Lyle, our question of the day is, I'm wondering, this is is from a listener, Sky, I'm wondering if it is sinful to shop at a Muslim shop. Yes. If you do it on the Sabbath day. Lawson's looked at me, he's looked at Shell, he's looked back at me again, he's like, wait I a like, minute. Man, I, I love kebabs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me read to you what the Bible says. This is a story of Nehemiah, mm. and it illustrates how you know uh, God's people lived back in the day. Yeah. And it says uh, in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 16, there lived there men of Tyre also, uh, obviously um, people from Tyre and, and uh, Syrophoenicia, uh, these were Lebanese people, they were Gentiles, they were pagans, they were Baal worshippers, all that mm. kind of stuff. Uh, and there lived there men of Tyre also, which brought fish and all kinds of ware 
and sold to the children of Judah in Jerusalem. And then it goes on to say that they sold it to them on the Sabbath day. Mm. So what does Nehemiah do? Does he ban them because they are not followers of God, because they are idolaters? And, of course, you've got to remember the Islamic people are not idolaters. They are the complete opposite of that. They are as far from idolatry as what you can get. Mm. They uh, have much stricter laws against idolatry than what Christians have, mm. and uh, uh, and they are followers of God but from a different uh, background and uh, a different text. But it continues on here in verse 17. It says, But when they did it on the Sabbath, I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this? Is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Notice here the issue is not buying and selling from pagans. It is breaking the Sabbath day. That's right. It's like you shouldn't be doing shopping on the Sabbath day. Uh, he continues on, It came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark, because, of course, uh, the Sabbath begins on sundown Friday, before the Sabbath I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they would not be opened until after the Sabbath. And some of my servants, I said at the gates, that there would be no burden brought in on the Sabbath day. So no one would be you know, bringing in a donkey loaded with goods to sell on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kinds of ware lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice, and they were kind of selling over the wall. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you pass your money down in a bucket. Sneaky, and pass the, they pass the goods up yeah. in a bucket. And That's so he's right. like, nah, 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 guys, you're out of here. He says, if you keep doing this, um, I'm going to lay hands on you, and that's not going to be a good outcome yeah, for he's you. He's going to beat him up. He's going to yeah. He's going to solve the problems. That was that was the kind of person that Nehemiah was, mm. and so no, there is absolutely no issue with uh, buying from somebody who is a pagan. Now I've you know dealt with this myself. It's what's called the genetic fallacy that if something comes from a pagan um, source, then there must be something wrong with it. And the Apostle Paul addresses this in First Corinthians when he talks about food offered to idols. Now, food offered to idols is only going to be sold by pagan people. And the idea was that this was sacred food and that by eating this food, you would take into yourself the power of the God and so they would charge a premium price for it. And he's like, okay, if if uh, if you as a Christian, somebody offers you this kind of food, do you accept it or not? And he's like, it's just food. Mm. Just eat it. He says, if you've got a weak conscience and if, if uh, you come from a pagan background and uh, you can't eat that without participating in the worship that is associated with it, then don't eat it. You find this all in First Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, but he, he goes on and he says, look, it's just food. He says, for me, it's neither here nor there. It's just food. Just eat it. There's nothing wrong with buying food that comes from a pagan. There is nothing wrong even than buying food that has been dedicated to a pagan god because it's just food. You know, I, I know when I was younger, a lot of people said we shouldn't eat Pringles because they're made by Procter & Gamble and that's a company that gives money to a... Uh, satanic church. Now, I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that was a very common story that was going around when I was a teenager. I think it was debunked. I think so. Um, But the same principle applies there. We are not held accountable for what they do with their money and their profits. It's just food. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.